When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, welcome to The Tapping Go. My name is Matt. My name is Freddie. Each week we bring you your rugby fix with interviews with past and present rugby professionals. We get their views on the latest sporting issues. Hey guys, welcome back. Another episode of the Tap and Go for you today. It's the final episode of the series and boy, have we got a treat for you. On Saturday, the 8th of April 2017, our guest today underwent an operation to repair a fractured dislocation of a C6 and C7 vertebrae, which he sustained while diving into a shallow pool. And the ambulance ride there has resuscitated three times. It's quite a shocking but truly inspirational story. It's, of course, Mr. Ed Jackson. Ed, how are you? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Pleasure to... Uh... Pleasure to be here. Sun's out, which is um, makes a nice change for the last month or so. So feeling pretty upbeat. Definitely. So, I mean, obviously, as long as you're happy to talk about it, I think we'll start, we'll start with your injury. And can you tell us a little bit about that day? Um, well, you know, it was pretty much like today. It was the first sunny, first sunny day of the year, but it was a bit warmer than it is right now. As you said, it was in April. So I was recovering from a shoulder injury from when I was, I was playing at the Dragons at the time and I'd had another shoulder op. So I... I was sort of laid up from that waiting. I was actually wasn't going to be fit until the following season. So um, I went back home for the weekend to my parents near Bath, um, obviously because it was hot, went round to our closest friends with a swimming pool, as you do. And um, yeah, effectively, after after lunch, went down to the pool, dived in to what I thought was a deep end, turned out to be the shallow end. It was like a feature pool, so um, it wasn't that obvious. And uh yeah, what I thought was a couple of metres deep only turned out to be, um, yeah, a lot less than that. Hit my head on the bottom. Um, didn't lose consciousness, but knew something was wrong straight away. I'd never really banged my head that hard. Um, but it was when I tried to swim to the surface, effectively, that I realised something was seriously wrong because I couldn't move. So I dislocated the bottom of my neck, as you said, um, and that had left me paralysed from the shoulders down. Luckily, my dad was in the pool um, and one of my mates pulled me to the surface. And uh, yeah, that was, yeah, that marked the end of my rugby career and a, and a long journey of sort of recovery and a lot of change over, over the last four years. Completely. And obviously, so 
starting from the beginning of the rehab process, how important was it to try and stay positive and try and like look at the benefits of what could happen in the future? Um, yeah, so important. I mean, obviously all of these, with these injuries, like a lot of it is mental. Obviously if a physical thing happens to you, but if, if you want to recover in any, to any degree, you need to be, have a positive mindset. Having said that, it's really, really hard to, to stay positive when there's so much uncertainty about, like, I don't know whether I'd ever be independent again, whether I'd ever walk again. Um, and after like a week, I still hadn't had any movement or sensation return. So I was still a category Asia A1, which is at the highest level of spinal cord injury and, and things were looking pretty bleak. Um, but a few things happened like in that first week. I think uh, if I was to sort of sit here and say, yeah, I knew I was going to get better and I was staying positive from the start, I'd be lying. I had pretty dark thoughts and and um, it was a pretty scary time. But I kind of moved my focus off myself and onto the, onto my wife and and my family and the people that were going to eventually have to look after me for the rest of my life if I didn't become independent again. And then it wasn't just about me anymore. It was about them too. And that sort of gave me the motivation to you know, really push, really push hard. And, and a couple of days later, um, my toe wiggled and I'd been told that was never going to happen again. So for me, then all, all bets were off. Um, and we could just push as hard as possible to see how much, how much could return, but staying positive, you know, it was difficult at times. Um, but at the same time, there were, there were other, there were other moments where I was improving. I was back in a sort of physical challenge, which is what I was used to as a player. Like I'd, I'd, you know, had I'd recovered from lots of injuries before. Obviously, this one was a bit more serious, but every day I was like setting myself these challenges of try and move your little finger a little bit more. Or um, and a lot of the time it was really hard to do that. But when I did, it meant so much more than anything I'd won before or played, you know, done before in my rugby career or at school and things like that. That I was getting these little wins every day. And it felt amazing. And actually, in a weird way, I, I quite enjoyed a lot of my recovery, even though there was still a lot of uncertainty involved about whether I'd ever walk again. Um, huge amounts of it was was taking on physical challenges and seeing if you could overcome them, which is kind of what what I get my endorphins from, you know. And so you, so you said the milestone thing where you sort of you achieved a small thing and then you celebrate it and achieves a small thing and celebrate. And you mentioned it perhaps a correlated with rugby. Was there anything else that sort of came from your rugby sort of experience or sort of the mindset that you acquired from being a professional rugby player to your journey? Um, I think playing playing rugby professionally or playing rugby at any level, you know, gives you, instills a, a, definite, a certain level of like discipline. And if you want to succeed at it, you have to, you have to be disciplined in, in your training, in your you know, even on the way you act on the field. And, and I think um, that was that applied a lot during my recovery. You know, I had to do things that I didn't really want to do in terms of training. I had to dig in through the boring times. So I knew the only way to get results at the end of the day, a lot of the time was through hard work. Um, but the other things that, that, that really helped was I, I think you develop, especially playing professional rugby for a long time. And I played, I was lucky enough to play professionally for 10 years. You develop a certain level of resilience because you're used to not winning every week. You're used to injuries. You're used to not being selected. You know, not getting new contracts and getting knocked back isn't a nor isn't an abnormal thing for, for for a professional sports person. And you deal with you you kind of 
if you don't get yourself to a position where you can brush yourself up and off and get on with it, then you're never going to succeed in sport because inevitably you're never going to have it your own way the whole time. So I think when those days came where I didn't push as far through as I thought I would, or I would stagnate or I'd have a rough night's sleep, I was probably able to put it to the back of my mind a little bit quicker because of that sort of training of, of that mental training of just the, the the ups and downs of professional sport. And then the third one actually comes from the third one that really helped from rugby was actually my mates because um, there's a certain level of dark humor that's involved in rugby teams and rugby clubs and amongst rugby boys that actually was really important mentally because everyone's there, you know, your mum's there worrying and everyone, you know, a lot of people are like, oh my God, are you all right? And I'm lying in bed and I'm in a massive ICU bed where there's machines bleeping everywhere. I've got tubes in my neck. Like it's pretty graphic stuff. And most people come in and are like, oh no, you're all right. And all this sort of stuff. And it, and you, you know, you understand why they're like that because um, they're looking at something pretty drastic and they don't want to say the wrong thing. But if anything, it kind of makes it feel worse than it already is you know it's already bad whereas you whereas your your rugby mates will come in and immediately start taking the piss out of you um i remember one of my mates gave me three juggling balls when i was completely paralyzed from the shoulders down for something to pass the time um most of the boys would end up just coming in and eating all the food that was brought in for me because i was being fed by a tube most of the time and, and but people kept bringing chocolates and you know what do you take to someone who's in in hospital but I can eat it. So eventually I noticed that actually the circle of players that were coming through were getting more and more tight five front rowy because they knew there was just a hamper full of food at the end of my bed that I can eat. So, um, but no, the, you know, it, there was, there's lots of things that I'm very grateful for being, having been involved in rugby circles for, for my whole life. And, and, and I think they benefit, it's benefited me massively with my recovery from my own physical my own physical sort of where i was physically when i got injured so i was always already carrying a lot more muscle bulk than a normal person so my neck was stronger it also meant that when i couldn't move for three months and i atrophied i still had some muscle left afterwards to work with to get stronger again all the way to like the mental side of things which i talked about the resilience and the dark humor um, but now, you know, after I've left this, the rugby community is amazing. Like the support I've received from not just my old clubs, but other clubs that I used to play against, and players that I don't even know, retired players, you know, so supporting me and the charity and, and also the charities that are involved, Matt Hampson Foundation, Restart, um, who I'm now a trustee for. Um, it, it's a great, it's a very it, yeah, I feel very privileged to be involved in the rugby community, and when something like this comes, this happens. It very much is, it very much is a you know, if you're involved with rugby, it's, it is. They talk about the rugby family, and it is one big family, and I really felt that support. And obviously, you wrote a blog the whole way through your recovery, as in, I know, I think you used an Alexa to record voice memos, obviously you weren't writing or typing. Was that something that sort of you just wanted something to do every day? Or was it sort of a mental thing that really helps like keep your mind busy and try and keep like moving forward, I guess? Yeah, it's a good question because it's morphed a bit. Like originally I started it because I wanted something to um, offload my thoughts for the day so that I could go to sleep. And that's why I was talking to Alexa because obviously I couldn't move. And, and I would just talk about what I'd done during the day and what had gone well and what had gone badly. And Alexa was transcribing it into notes and and then after 
two or three weeks one of one of, i woke up one of my mates had read all of the notes obviously as your mates do um it was private but not anymore and he persuaded me to make it public because i wasn't one of those people who like put myself out there um i didn't really have i probably posted once on instagram in my life before that point um fair to say it's a lot more now but um you know he said look a lot of this stuff is about living in hospital with an injury and 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 if other people go through that this could really help so on that premise i couldn't really not so i started putting it out there and i was ignoring the responses i didn't want to see what anyone was saying because again being a young bloke but being a proud bloke and being being a rugby player you're short you're kind of brought up to show no weakness and i was finding it hard to be vulnerable i didn't want to know what people were saying but then my wife forced me to look at the responses and, and it was amazing and um very quickly there was like ten thousand people reading what i was writing every day whether that be about um bowel and bladder care or 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 um spasms i was having or what people had done during the day really innocuous things but i think people were just interested in what goes on in someone's head whilst they're going through a life-changing incident and then it became more of a right i'm helping people and then actually it became it morphed into people are helping me because it you know, they were getting contact people were getting contact with me who've been through these things before and and were offering me advice and the shoulder to cry on if you like a lot of the time because i didn't want to be honest with my mum and, and my family and a lot of the time how i was feeling because i already felt guilty enough for what you know what i put them through so um i wanted them to put across that impression that i was absolutely fine but of course you're not always absolutely fine but if it's a stranger and someone who can relate to you then then it's a lot easier to talk to them and once you do talk to them you realize you feel a lot better so it was helping me as much as it was helping other people and then since i left i've just found the writing that you know i didn't i never thought i could write and i still don't really I, I still can't really write very well but even my english teacher wrote to me whilst i was in hospital a really runny funny letter he just basically said, uh, you know, great that you're doing what you're doing. And um, he was like, I just never knew you were actually listening in class. <laughs> I think a lot of people don't realise they're capable of doing things until they give it a go. So now I enjoy writing because of that, the creative practice in itself. I think it's quite a rewarding thing to do. It helps me think. So if I've got an idea about something and I start writing about it, those ideas will start exposing themselves and unwinding a little bit more and then you go off down a different path and a lot of the time I don't even know what I'm going to write about when I sit down and then you just put pen to paper and um, and things start happening sometimes sometimes good things sometimes bad things more often than not bad things but um, every now and again it helps you work through your thoughts and to the point now where um, I have actually I don't think I've actually said this publicly yet but I've got um, a release date for a book I've spent the last year writing which is coming out in um, August this year so luckily I had yeah I was lucky enough to get a book deal just before lockdown happened and coronavirus happened so I've had a lot of time on my hands to uh, to do some writing so I'm excited to put that out there and, and that's basically just tying in all of my blogs and 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 also filling in the gaps about the things that I wasn't talking about because I didn't want my family or friends to read it and um, to upset them. So it's just about the journey of someone going through a life-changing life-changing injury, a life-changing sit situation, but also the journeys of the other people around them because obviously these things affect your friends and family just as much as, as they affect you. So yeah, it's scary. I mean, I can't believe as of August, it's, I'm actually going to be a, an official author because 
you know, it's weird how life twists and turns, but that is one thing I would have a hundred percent said I was never going to be if you had asked me when I was eighteen or nineteen. Um, and I know you're very as soon as it happened, you're very keen. And obviously, it was going to affect your life, but try and not keep going the same as usual, but to try and keep moving forward in life. And obviously, I think you got married while you're still recovering. How important was you to try and keep going? Yeah, I think I think progress is one of the most important things that we can all have. I think, especially for our mental health. I mean, for for the charity I've got now, um, progress is one of our three P's, and and it's important to be progressing in something. And I think the last year or so um, with coronavirus, a lot of the reasons people have been struggling is that well, first of all, the um, that feeling of uncertainty so not so knowing what's happening in the future you know that is what brings on anxiety but the other one is that sort of not feeling like they're progressing in anything anymore and it's why people even if they're earning 200 grand a year in the city but they're getting up every day to do the same thing often end up feeling you know struggling mentally because they're not progressing in certain areas and the same was the same applied for me you know i i got knocked back to square one if you like and for a long time, I felt completely useless. Like I was even having to be fed, you know, like washed. People help me go to the toilet, all of these sorts of things. So as soon as actually I started taking control back of some of those things and felt like I could move forward in a positive way. And actually that that probably came from when I started writing the blog because I then started feeling like I could actually help people. And there was some good coming from this situation and not just bad things. And And that feeling became quite quite addictive um but at the same time i was going through a life-changing injury where i was having to deal with it mentally but also physically so hours and hours of physio every day and a lot of the time it's hard to sort of see you know see the future if you like and and with so if i was injured from a from a rugby match i could pick a game or a season to go for and, and then i would know that after six months nine months of doing this rehab i would get there whereas it's very different with what was going on with my injury it was kind of uncertain how long i'd have, I'd have to do it for probably the rest of my life but where i would end up so having those goals in place to work towards and keep the progression going whether it be the wedding was obviously a massive one for me early on, just being able to walk down the aisle. I know it's the bride that walks down the aisle, but I didn't want to just be sort of propped up at the end. And then she has to walk off without me, you know, or, or having to literally like wheel me back down with her. And I wanted to give her the wedding that, that she'd always dreamt of. Um, and fortunately, so that was a massive, massive motivating factor for me. And, and now moving into what I do with the mountains and the challenges, that's one of the main reasons I do it is, is for myself, actually, to put a, a line in the sand and something to progress towards. Otherwise, you know, it's why people, you know, put themselves out there to do a marathon a lot of the time and things like that. It's to motivate themselves to keep progressing with their sort of everyday tasks. And, and that's where I am at the moment. And that, that's sort of a perfect way to segue to sort of, yeah, you're exploring at the moment. So so a year after your injury, you obviously climbed Snowden, which was an incredible achievement given sort of the severity and it's quite amazing. So, and you mentioned that you did it for yourself. So I was wondering, like, how did you transition between sort of being in a hospital bed and playing rugby before that to sort of climbing mountains? Well, like, was this something that you enjoyed when you were younger or? Um, I'd, I've always been a bit of a country, we lived, lived in the country, I'm not a city boy, but at the same time, I'm not like a mountaineer. Um, I've, I think before, apart from skiing, the biggest mountain I'd climbed was probably Snowdon. So 
um, like pre-accident when I was able-bodied. Um, and the reason it came about was for all those reasons I just mentioned, I wanted to set a goal for myself. So it'd been nine months since my accident. I was still in and out of a wheelchair, but I was doing hours and hours of physio every day. But didn't really, and I was losing motivation, to be honest, because I felt myself losing motivation because there was no end target in, to, to aim towards. And um, so I set Snowden. I said to my physio, I was like 12 months, Mark, I want to do something. I want to, I want to set an example to everyone else who's in hospital who's been given a guarded negative prognosis that maybe they can overturn that and do do something, you know, that they were told they can't. Um, but also raise money for all the charities that had supported me, mostly restart. Um, by that point, I wanted to pay them, pay them back for for the they had basically funded my physio since I left hospital, which was unbelievable and made such a big difference. So I wanted to repay them, um, but then also to set myself a target so I could keep sane during um, physio. So I set myself a target of climbing Snowden. I thought, seeing as it's, um, you know, I'd finished playing in Wales. I love Wales, and also it's a, it was achievable. Um, I say achievable. I mean, at the time, my I mean, my physio said I was mad when I said it. I was going to do it. And he thought I was actually planning for the year later, so a whole year after, um, year afterwards. But I was adamant I wanted to give it a go, and and I opened it up to anyone who wanted to come and join in. Um, I expected a couple of people to turn up, but actually, I turned around on the start line, and there was seventy people there who come to support, and and they all had their own stories, and and it took nine hours to get up there, and it was probably the hardest thing I'd ever done. But I remember standing on the top and just thinking, wow, like. I never thought I'd feel this way again, like feel like I could, I'd actually achieved something and overcome something. And, and it wasn't because I'd climbed Snowden. I mean, I'd run up there before when I was able-bodied, but it would been the full year of going from being completely paralyzed and told I was never going to walk again. And I just thought about all the people that had helped me, how lucky I'd been um, at every point along the way and then stood on top of a mount all of a sudden next thing I know it gone by like that like the year had gone by so quickly in some ways the, the longest year of my life but in other in many other ways the quickest year of my life because I was just so focused all the way through and next thing I knew I stood on top of this mountain in North Wales unbelievable day like um, well until we got up towards the top and then the clouds rolled in but there were 70 people there who had come to support me and I was just like this is this is amazing and and I was hooked. I was straight away. When where where's the next mountain? What are we doing next? And unfortunately, restart had an alpine challenge going on anyway, so it wasn't long before we were in the Alps. And and the strange thing is, I've sort of become this disabled mountaineer, if you like. Which is, I mean, climbing mountains is is the is probably the the last thing I should be doing functionally. Um, swimming rowing any of those things even cycling to a certain extent um i would be better at but i think it's because it's so hard and there's something about there's something about being out in the mountains and there's something about standing on top of a mountain with other people and the journey to get there um that is quite spiritual for me and i'm not really a spiritual person i wasn't before but um i am now to a certain extent and um that some of the relationships I've made, you know, out there and, and some of the stories that I've been told and and how it's how much it's impacted my mental health throughout this process. Um, I can't imagine being in the position I am today without without stumbling effectively on climbing mountains with with the Snowden challenge. But I think it's something I'm not going to look back um, 
I'm going to look back. I'm not going to look back from. If anything, I'm looking to go higher and higher, and we'll see. We'll see how far it takes us. I mean, it's, it's quite staggering to hear. We wish you the best of luck with it. Obviously, any, any further adventures you do in this field, I think this just sort of shows how someone can take any activity and sort of use it to help them further and sort of gain a new goal and push towards a new target. All righty, guys, it's that time again. Time to pay for the pints. Today's podcast has been brought to you by our mates over at Team Blazers. Big shout out to them. The great British Blazers company kidding you out for every match day social. Check them out now. And obviously you suffer from my pronunciations wrong here do correct me brown sickard syndrome which obviously limits the movement how how did that affect your training so obviously any mountaineering challenges you need to train for it yeah so i'm still very much disabled i've got brown sickard syndrome which effectively one of the bits of um disc between my uh vertebrae it, it, when my disc the impact was so hard on the top of my head the disc exploded and there was sort of blew across my spinal cord and cut my spinal cord in half. So brown saccade syndrome is normally, it's only suffered by about 1% of spinal cord injuries. It's usually caused by stab or gunshot wounds. So it's where half of your, half of your spinal cord has been cut clean in half. Mine was caused by a shard of, a shard of disc. Um, and it means I've got poor motor function down one side, being my left side, and then poor sensation down the other side. I won't try and explain it if people are listening to this because you have to kind of point it out. But it's because your motor nerves come down one side and your sensory nerves come down the other side, then they cross over. And my injury was above the level when they cross over anyway. It means that um, I'm affected with my movement. Obviously, I have one strong side, one weak side. Um, and also, I'm still affected in every other way that spinal cord injured people are or people with neurological injuries. And it's not often talked about, you know, all the bladder bladder function, bowel function, sexual function, all of the spasms, temperature regulation, all of those things, because obviously neurology controls your whole body. And actually, those things affect my day to day life way more than the fact I limp around. So I still have to use um, AFO, which is a foot orthotic to lift my left foot up because I've got foot drop on that side. And then the weakness in my core and arm and, and hand um, impacts me a bit, but I'm just so much further on than than I was ever supposed to be in the first place. And it's funny because actually if someone told you, you're never really going to be able to use your left hand again for the rest of your life. You know, if someone had told me that before my accident, I would have been absolutely devastated. I'd be like, how am I going to live with one hand? But now the fact my left hand doesn't really work really doesn't bother me. I just call it my strong hand and then get on with it with my other hand because it's in context of what's happened. I came to terms with the fact that I was going to be in a wheelchair for the rest of my life. I just wanted to be in the, independent and by independent i mean being able to use my arms feed myself but i thought i was going to be in a wheelchair i didn't even think that was an option so the fact that i'm stumbling around every day actually makes me happy and that's just because of a perspective shift and i think that's affected the rest of my life as well you know really appreciating the things i'm able to do rather than being annoyed at the things that i can't um and that's certainly, you know, an outlook of mine that's that's changed massively um, compared to what it was pre-accident. I think you just take my next question. So I've got a quote from you. It says, my life seems a lot better now than it was before. Not physically, there's still loads of issues, but mentally I'm way happier day to day. I think you sort of sum that up is that you've got to only live once. You've got to take what you can and just keep moving. Yeah, I think a huge amount of that is perspective. Um realizing how lucky I am to just have food on the table and the fact that I can breathe for myself. And I now know people who can't breathe for themselves and will never be able to limp up to the top of a mountain. And, you know, having that perspective and that reality check, I think is really important for people because we get stuck in our own bubble and 
we end up only looking up and looking at what people have got that we haven't got and it just ends up annoying you the whole time rather than realizing how good your own life is and all the things you have you know if you've got a loving family friends food just food on the table and education you know half of the people that you know i go to nepal a lot now i'm lucky enough to and a lot of them you know they struggle you know up in the mountains you know they struggle to put food on the table sometimes and they haven't got they literally haven't got two coins to rub together but they're happy because they don't want for anything and and i think it's really important i think that's why i spend i i say that i'm more positive now than i was before but also i'm doing these amazing things i'm very lucky to have fallen into um fallen into working on the media side with rugby so that filled a lot of holes for me staying in contact with with a lot of my friends and still keeping my foot in the door with the sport and also it's a new challenge you know doing tv and live tv and stuff is just as just as nerve-wracking as running out of twickenham so um that's a nice new challenge but also um through the charity you know i feel like i've got way more purpose now in my life than i ever did um by I'm in a position where I can actually positively impact other people's lives. And through the charity, we are starting to really do that. And it makes me think, well, shit, if I hadn't dived into that swimming pool, then all of these amazing things wouldn't be happening. And, and you know, I wouldn't be benefit my life wouldn't be benefiting others in the same way that it is. And I see that as a real privilege and um, the inspirational people that I've met along the way and there's just so many positives to be taken. And I think when you, when something like this happens to someone and you go through major trauma or you have a major loss, sometimes it can readdress the way you look at, look at life and, and you, you notice the positive things rather than dwelling on the negative things. And, and I think as a society, we're a bit guilty of doing the exact opposite. You know, you just have to look at the news at the moment to realize that everything is negative and people love to talk about how terrible every decision the government's made is or, how useless, you know, whatever, you know, it's just, there's no one saying, well, actually we're amazingly lucky and, and all we've had all this extra time with our families and look at how these communities have pulled together and look at the fundraising that's been done. And it's just not focused on. And, and I think for some reason, it's a pretty known fact. Like when people go through major trauma, there's called something called post-traumatic growth. A lot of the time you have two types of responses you have i mean i'm going into a bit of psychology now because it's what i'm interested in post-accident just trying to unpick my brain and, and other people's who've been through it and you either have um after the accident you either have passive victims which is the people who think that people are happening to ha things happen to them and life's not fair which is a completely normal way to think or you have active agents which is like well this has happened and I'm going to try and move forward and, and focus on the positives and see what I can deal with. And you can move from one to the other. Um, but I think if you don't know which one you're going to be, whether you're going to be a passive victim or an active agent until something actually happens. And I think if you'd asked me which one I would have been, I would probably have said passive victim before. Um, and uh, But it's amazing what, what you can deal with when your back's against the wall. And I think what's going on in the world at the moment has has brought has, has shone a light, I think, a lot on society and on individuals and just the way people have reacted whether that some in amazing positive positive ways some in amazing negative ways but actually as a whole you can tell that we focus on the negatives more than the positives and this giant everyone's seen this as a massive negative the last sort of year and a half and of course it is in a lot of ways but it could have been a huge positive as well if we were willing to look at it that way and some people have a lot of people haven't 
but it just shows you that the way you look at the world it's not necessarily what happens to you it's how you respond to it and the way you see that thing that's happening to you that really matters and, uh, yeah and i mean that's fascinating you actually sort of almost answered my um next thought or question that i had in mind which was sort of uh, i've heard on read a lot of a lot of people who go through sort of these life-changing events like you, they sort of look at their life in sort of different chapters. And after the event, it's sort of a new chapter and it comes with a new set of opportunities, like you said. And perhaps in, you have to define the word enjoyment or what you enjoy differently. Um, and I guess that's something that you could sort of relate to massively. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think one thing it's taught me is change is good as long as you're the type of person who's can deal with change. I mean, a lot of people, it's human nature to be scared of change. Like we don't like, we don't like it. And I think it, because it exposes us. Um, but actually all of the good things that, that have happened to me have come after changes that were out of my control. So for example, originally, but you know, I've signed for Bath after I left school and it was my hometown club and it was a dream come true. And I was captaining, you know, England under 18s at the time and my career was going one way. And then I had two shoulder injuries in a row, missed a year and a half of rugby and, and actually ended up getting released and signing for Doncaster. Now, at that time, I thought that was the worst thing that could have possibly happened. You know, I'd gone from my dream hometown club. I was having to move away to her, from home to Doncaster of all places. And actually, I went up there and I ended up having the most amazing time playing every week I'd, rather than holding tackle bags all the time. And it moved me on as a player more in that year than it had the previous three. And set me off. And then the next year I signed for London Welsh, we won the championship, first time the club's ever done it. So this supposedly negative thing, I decided to go up there, pull my socks up and just try and turn it into a positive. And I think we can all make that decision. And, and a lot of things happen in life after a lot of change always brings around opportunity. It's just whether you're whether you're able to see it or not, or whether you're willing to see it or not. Because most of the time when when something happens, change happens, people bury their head in the sand because they don't want to expose themselves. But actually, I would argue the opposite. You should go looking for change and you should go looking to put yourself in those vulnerable positions because that's where the, the good shit happens after those things normally, in my experience. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, we're going to move on to something else now. That's a really it's a good like mindset. It's an interesting concept we haven't really thought about before. Um, but now, so looking more, your the first lockdown, some people learned to bake banana breads, but you decided to climb Everest. I mean, in, in a way, he tell us a little bit about that. Uh, yeah. Um, so it was first lockdown. I was bored, um, as we all were. So about three weeks in when the novelty had worn off and, um, I work quite closely with a number of charities now. And one of them in particular, Wings for Life, a spinal cord injury research charity, they had had one of their main fundraisers cancelled as most, most charities had that year. And I wanted to do something to try and help. Um, apart from just cheering Captain Tom on from the sofa, I thought I need to actually pull my finger out and do something. And obviously he had the whole wandering around the garden thing locked down. So I couldn't copy him. I couldn't compete on that front. Um, so I just thought it'd be a laugh to go and try and climb my parents' staircase to the height of, well, the original plan was Snowden, you know, to symbolize my first mountain, but also to make it realistic. But then I found out my mate was climbing Mont Blanc. So I was like, the height of Mont Blanc. So I was like, got competitive and, and immediately said Everest, which which I regretted halfway through day two, considering Snowden turns out to be a lot low, a lot shorter than Everest. That would have, Snowden would have taken me about six hours. Everest took me about four days, 12 hours a day, five and a half thousand flights of stairs. Originally, I'd set the goal of raising two grand. Um, but luckily, because everyone was bored, 
and had nothing to do and were spending time on their phones and we were doing a lot of it across social media it kind of got a bit of attention and we ended up raising over 50 grand for wings for life and for the nhs and um yeah it was it was good it was entertaining but at the same time it was the most mind-numbing thing i've ever done in, in my life because normally you in the mountains and you've got people to to talk to and things to look at and and for me it was just the corridor upstairs over and over again luckily though there was a fridge at the bottom of every every lap that i did um normally you don't get that in the mountains so i was keeping very well hydrated and fed the whole time um but we had a laugh with it and most of it was actually a lot of the reason we did it um so we did some instagram lives over in the morning at eight o'clock and then in the evening at, at six o'clock and um the reason we did them at those times was just to give some give people a break from the news if they wanted to so we would go on instagram live we'd get people to come on and chat with us we had like haskell come on and dj and just like we were messing around and having good having fun with it and we i just wanted to spread a bit of positivity during instead of everyone including myself before who was just waiting to hear the death toll at 6 p.m and ever then everyone was wondering why they were feeling shit about themselves and it was because of that negative input and your brain's only got a certain amount of cognitive space bandwidth if you, if you like to deal with to deal with things so if you fill it with negativity there's not going to be as much room for positivity but during negative times if you fill it with positivity naturally you're not going to have as much negativity in there so there was there was that goal as well which which ended up being quite funny ended up like actually at one point um doing an instagram live with one of my mates and then all of a sudden joe wicks called in which was a bit of a shock considering he was like he was at the time in the middle of his like pe with joe wicks which is absolutely massive so um yeah, it was good fun. And I think in another example, I, I always talk about turning negatives into positives and opportunities and adversity. So in a way, I feel like if I hadn't done something during lockdown, everyone would have been like, well, <laughs> you've got to practice what you preach. So it turned out to be turned out to be a good thing. I mean, talking about practicing what you preach, I think you, you really commit to it as well. I think I read somewhere that on the final day, you got up at 4am to make sure there was still frozen snow at the summit. How important was it for you to... Um make it as realistic as possible i mean within the circumstances well yeah i mean the funny thing the funny thing was after i finished i had did a couple of interviews and they were like well now you know now you've done the height of everest are you more confident that one day you're gonna be able to do the real thing and i was like Look, i don't know much about mountaineering but i do know that there is no comparison between your parents staircase and the real mount everest like i don't have to spend a month at base camp for a start and it's not minus 20. um but i th it was more to have fun with it you know i camped in a tent at the bottom of the stairs and then um I, on summit day you always end up leaving at like two three in the morning always with a head torch on because you want to get up to the summit and back down before midday before it heats up too much because then becomes an avalanche risk and all of those sorts of things so i just wanted to make that realistic as well but it was more to do with the narrative of having fun and spreading some positivity basically and obviously it was all for charity i think you raised forty thousand pounds by the uh, end of the day looking at the charity so obviously restarts had in particular that's had a massive effect on your life just how good are these char charities supporting rugby players at the moment yeah they're great i mean it, so supporting rugby players in particular so i mean i'm involved with a number of charities got spinal cord injury charities which are natural naturally um i lean towards because because i've had a spinal cord injury so i could probably have more impact there and there's some amazing ones like the matt hampson foundation do a lot of work within sport and spinal cord injury um and then you've got uh, like Backup Trust, Wings for Life that I mentioned before that I'm ambassador for, who are actually Red Bull's um, partner charity, well, they're Red Bull's charity because the owner of Red Bull's godson broke his neck in a motocross accident sort of 
10 years ago so they're looking for a cure so they're amazing as well and then rugby wise i work with restart and um there's some other great rugby charities like the injured players foundation that looks after all rugby players um but then restart looks after the professional players in 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 england um men and women all the premiership players in england, men and women so they um they looked after me and sponsored my my rehab um afterwards and yeah the support for professional players is is really good but at the same time we're really struggling as a charity at the moment because for the same reasons all charities are um but actually more to do with the fact that most of the support that we give to the premiership is around mental health and confidential counseling and there's a lot of stresses involved with playing professional sport the demographic of being young blokes is the most affected demographic by um, by mental health um, and of course, without the fundraising and the other thing about mental health, most of it's confidential. So it's very hard to raise money for a lot of the time if you're not talking about specific cases. Um, so we're actually in a bit of trouble at the moment, surprisingly enough, um, it, to be able to continue all the services what, with what, you know, the hit we've taken with COVID. So yes, although there are specific charities that are there to look after professional players, um, also they've been impacted in the same way all the other charities have, and they are... They aren't as big as you know your cancer charities or your um all of your environmental charities or you know, they don't have the big cash reserves that those that, that those charities do so but then we always find that um it, they're amazingly well supported by individuals because um naturally with the way rugby is especially in england um in the uk um you often get people who have been to it's pr pr predominantly especially in england the private school sport university sport and then you end up with people in positions of influence at companies and organizations that can support charities that have an interest in rugby and that's just that's just luck of the draw really so a lot of the time um the support comes from them as well I mean, everything that you've done for charity is quite staggering. And I was very, I remember watching it when you've been recognised now, I think you were an unsung hero for BBC Sports Personality. What were your emotions towards that? Was it nice to be recognised? Was it a surprise? Yeah, it was a complete surprise. Um, my missus had been scheming behind my back for the previous three weeks to sort it out with them. And apparently I was completely oblivious to it. She was blatantly lying to my face like every day, but I was just... I put it down to trust. That's what I told her. I was like, I just trust you loads. She was like, you just don't care what I say, do you? I was like, no, no, it's not that. But yeah, I mean, it was, it was weird. It was actually really emotional because there's some of the obvious stuff that I do through my charity and the other charities that I support. But a lot of the time I spend the vast majority of my time in terms of charitable work or support work, I spend speaking to individuals who are going through something similar or their families. And that is just, something I like to do in my spare time because that's something that people did for me and I think it's really important and really powerful and and I get a lot from from those people as well um, and that's something I never really talk about and then there's no need to talk about it um, I get a huge amount from it um, anyway and hopefully it can help people in the same way it helped me so for some of those people to come forward and talk um, on the BBC and for um, it to be recognized was amazing um but at the same time quite surprising because i think a lot of these things that you end up doing if i'm if i'm completely honest with you i do a lot of this stuff because it makes me feel good and i think if people were uh, people said otherwise about a lot of charity work well charity just wouldn't exist if it didn't make people feel good there's something really rewarding about going and doing something um for someone else and making someone else feel better and often doing that 
if you do it seriously unselfishly outside of you know the the public giving donations i did this cutting a ribbon having your statue outside of something you've paid for is still great because it means that things being paid for but actually doing things that are completely um off grid and for yourself they seem to hit home a lot more with you and the person you're doing it for and uh that's why I do it and I never want any would never want any recognition for it so it was a complete shock because to me it's just something I enjoy doing rather than something that I seriously have, feel like I go out of my way to do mm, wow um well we're coming towards the end of our podcast and we've got sort of two more questions um so I guess uh, the most appropriate one is what's next for you sort of what's sort of the next chapter um, so this year, um, we have a lot of just hoping for a successful year with the charity, to be honest. So we're running four trips. We've got one to the Alps, one to Iceland, no, two to the Alps, one to Iceland and one to Nepal um, and a fifth trip down in Cornwall as well. Um, and it looks thanks to the announcements that they're all going to go ahead as planned. And we're taking our first eight beneficiaries away on those trips this year. So going to start really helping people. I had this sort of dream two and a half years ago and, and sort of this year it becomes a reality, which is great. I mean, we ran trips last year, but this is the first year we're really going to be helping beneficiaries. So um, I just wanted a successful year with that. And then on a personal level, um, I'm climbing Mont Blanc, hopefully in September, and then going out to Nepal, um, as I mentioned before, to try and climb a 7,000 meter mountain, which will be by far the highest mountain I've I've climbed before. So that's the that's the personal challenge that I'm taking on. And then at the same time, hopefully, if it all goes ahead as planned, I'll be out in Tokyo for the Paralympics working with Channel 4 as well, which would be um which would be a lot of fun. And then and then I've got a podcast coming out next week and a book coming out in August. So yeah, lots of things to look forward to. Wow, what are you? Yeah. Well, we, we also ask um, all our guests sort of their favorite moment in their sort of career. And I guess for you, it's sort of a, an extended career, perhaps. Um, what's sort of your favorite moment throughout sort of your life, I guess? Um, in terms of my, do you mean rugby career? No, sort of anything. Well, um, most of my favorite moments have probably come, ironically, and since my accident, <laughs> I think getting... My highlights really, I think, from pre-accident would be from rugby. Um, there would I can say that because I got married after my accident. So I'm in this, I'm in, yeah, it's, it's a safe one to say. But yeah, I, um, getting picked for England for the first time under 16s, getting my first contract with Bath uh, when I was 17, just knowing I was leaving school to do that. Um, and then winning the championship with London Welsh was was an amazing experience um given that it was a group of players we were really the underdogs and it was a group of players that a lot of them never thought they would ever play premiership rugby and then all of a sudden the next year they're playing against Exeter and Saracens and it's, uh, that was a lot of fun like great fun bunch I'm still friends with a lot of them living in Cardiff was another highlight love love the Welsh love living in Wales um and then wiggling my toe for the first time was probably the biggest moment of my life, to be honest, symbolically, because what it meant. Um, getting married um, was was amazing, especially given what we thought was going on. You know, there's a lot of times I thought that I would never get married after I had my accident. You know, I was saying to my wife or fiance at the time, you know, you you should, you don't have to stay with me or you shouldn't stay with me. You didn't sign up for this. And then 
a year and a half later, we were stood at the altar in, in Italy. So that was an amazing, amazing time in my life. Um, and then more recently, all the mountains, getting the charity established. Um, to be honest, you know, I think this is the problem with me. Like, I look at everything positively now. If you'd asked me that question before my accident, I'd have said, I don't know, playing, playing for Bath or something. But now it's like I think back and just think how lucky I am to have done all of these crazy things. And, um, yeah, life's not easy for me in a lot of ways still. Um, a lot definitely not as easy as it used to be. Um, but I'm still incredibly lucky compared to so many people and and uh i'll never forget that well ed on behalf of me and matt and for everyone who's listening thank you so much for giving up your afternoon to come speak to us um it's been really quite inspirational for us and i hope everyone who's listened really enjoyed it as well um so yeah thank you very much pleasure guys really enjoyed it Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.